Welcome to episode 37, at long last, of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This episode will be devoted to the Jews of Egypt, which is a much more interesting and diverse story than you might expect. But I have a couple of explanatory points before we begin. First of all, many of you have been kind enough to give me feedback one way or another about some of the past podcasts and about what you would like to be the subjects of future podcasts. Quite a few of you have asked for me to do something about the Cuban Jewish community, which is very interesting and very important. But I should make one thing clear. I truly feel comfortable only doing places that I've been to at least once, if not multiple times, and places that I know, that I feel I could walk you around and serve as your guide. So since I've never been to Cuba, that means that doing an episode on Cuba is a long way off. I would have to change my fundamental approach to this whole process. I have, however, been to Egypt multiple times, and I know enough about Arab history to know that Egypt is unique in the Arab world and also unique in the Jewish world in terms of its history and the history of its Jews. So let's begin with what is likely to be the most obscure thing you'll hear about today, and which I only know about because those of us who were young people at Camp Ramon, Wisconsin in the early 1970s had the good fortune to be exposed to a wonderful rabbi and teacher and illustrious professor named Bezalel Porton. And he was one of the foremost academic experts in the world on the little-known subject of the elephantine Jewish community, and Elephantine is an island in the Nile near what is today's border between Egypt and Sudan, but historically was the border between the Egyptian kingdoms and the kingdom of Nubia. And because we've just celebrated on the Jewish calendar Passover, which is the story of the exodus of Jewish slaves from Egypt in approximately the 13th century BCE, uh, it seems particularly fitting to start with what was kind of an exodus in reverse. There were political problems in the ancient kingdoms of Judah and Israel, and these problems preceded the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians in 586 before the Common Era. These problems began in the 8th or at the very latest, the 7th century BCE. And one of the results of these problems was a, a large displacement of Jews back to southern Egypt. Now, the first group who arrived, arrived in the 7th century BCE, and largely served as mercenaries for the Egyptian army, who guarded the frontier between Egypt and Nubia to the south. After the destruction of the Second Temple, roughly a hundred years later, some Judean refugees traveled south and settled in what was an already existing Jewish community, where they built and maintained their own temple, in which sacrifices were offered, but it's not clear to what extent this temple was purely Jewish and duplicative of the temple that had been destroyed in Jerusalem, or a little bit syncretistic and incorporating some polytheistic beliefs and practices. In any case, that temple was destroyed in the year 410 BCE, and not too long thereafter, 
The Greeks took over what was left of the great Egyptian kingdoms, and Egypt had been in its death throes for a couple of centuries. So by the early 4th century BCE, Egypt was firmly in the hands of Greek rulers, and the Jewish community on Elephantine basically just disappeared. And lest you think this is some bizarre fantasy on my part, there are huge numbers of legal documents and letters written in Aramaic, collectively called the Elephantine Papyri, because they were written on papyrus. And these papyri document the presence of a living, speaking, writing, functioning community of Jewish mercenaries and their families who moved from Israel back to Egypt, roughly speaking, 500 years after the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. As is so often the case in Jewish history, there isn't really one history of the Jews of Egypt. Rather, there are several, some of which overlap and some of which are completely independent. When the Jews left Elephantine, they settled in other parts of Egypt, and almost concurrently, Jews from the Holy Land have been settling along the shores of the Mediterranean. So that by the time the Mediterranean was a Roman lake, roughly around the time of Jesus, all the towns and cities on the Mediterranean coast had significant Jewish communities. But one place on the Mediterranean in northern Egypt is Alexandria, which was found by the great emperor Alexander the Great in 332 BCE. But Jews were already present in great numbers in Alexandria. And so part of the question is, where did they come from? Well, one part of the answer is that there had been, ever since the Jewish settlements in Elephantine, Jewish communities throughout Egypt. But when the first Ptolemy captured Judea, he led 120,000 Jewish captives to Egypt from the areas of Judea, Jerusalem, Shomron, Hargrizim, whatever. And with them, many other Jews who were attracted by the fertile soil and by the liberality of the Greek emperors emigrated to Egypt of their own accord. Josephus claims that soon after the forcible transfer of these people by Ptolemy, the captives were freed from bondage by another Greek emperor named Philadelphus, and then Jews stayed, and they were always a notable portion of Alexandria's population for much of the rest of history. I'm going to give you two more bits of important information about Alexandria. One, the Jewish community there under Greek rule completed the first translation of the Hebrew Bible into a foreign language, which was Greek. This translation is called the Septuagint. It began in the 3rd century BCE and was completed in or slightly before 132 BCE, initially in Alexandria, but obviously at the time there was no printing press, so it was copied, and there were copies throughout the Christian world eventually. It became the source book for Old Church Slavonic, Syriac, Old Armenian, Old Georgian, and Coptic versions of what the Christians call the Old Testament, which is, for Jews, the Holy Bible. The Jewish community of Alexandria was extinguished, quote-unquote, by Trajan's army during a war from 115 to 117 of the Common Era, also known as the Diaspora Revolt. This revolt was largely motivated by religious zeal, aggravated after a failed great revolt and destruction of the temple, and by anger at discriminatory laws. The greatest 
blow to this historic community in Alexandria was the establishment of a new state religion under the Byzantine Empire, which Egypt was a key part of. It was sort of the breadbasket of the Byzantine Empire. That religion was Christianity, and there was an expulsion of a large number of Jews from Alexandria in either 415 or 414 of the Common Era. Something like 100,000 Jews were exiled from that city. And the expulsion then continued in nearby regions, followed by a forced conversion to Christianity of many Jews from those regions. So Egypt was one of many places in the Mediterranean world where the arrival of Arab conquerors who brought with them the new religion of Islam in the 7th and 8th centuries of the Common Era was really welcomed by Jews because the Muslim rulers were much more lenient and much more tolerant than the Christian rulers were, by and large. And they welcomed, as did many of the local indigenous populations, they welcomed the Arabs as liberators. Somewhat arbitrarily, I think, most scholarly sources divide the Arab period in Egypt into two different periods. One is referred to as Arab rule from 641 to 1250, and the other is referred to as Mamluk rule from 1250 to 1517. Well, you have to know that Mamluks were also Arabs. They were sort of a subgroup of Arabs. And even before the Mamluks, there were different dynasties of caliphs, and the capital of the Arab world moved around a lot. So at one point it was Damascus under the Umayyads, then under the Abbasids it was Baghdad, and eventually the Mongols destroyed and razed Baghdad, and the capital of the Islamic world moved out of Arab hands and into the hands of Turks, specifically Ottoman Turks. But as far as Egypt goes... And particularly as far as the Jews of Egypt go, we know relatively little about the nature of Jewish life in Egypt under the Umayyads and the Abbasids, who collectively were in charge from 661 to 868 of the Common Era. Then there was a new dynasty called the Tulanids, and we know that during their period, which was 863 to 905, Karaite community in Egypt grew dramatically. When the Fatimids conquered Egypt in 969, Jews from all over North Africa came to settle in Egypt. They made up a significant percentage of the population, and due to the discovery of the Cairo Geniza documents late in the 19th century, a lot is known about Egyptian Jewish life during this period. This Geniza included all kinds of private records, letters, public records, documents, accounts, bills, etc., etc., which give us great insight into the nature of Jewish life in Egypt. The period of the Fatimids was generally quite favorable for Jews, except for one portion of one guy's reign. Lots of schools and great scholars developed also the tradition of great Jewish court physicians. And there was a structure in Egypt whereby the highest legal authority for the Jewish community was a so-called chief scholar. This position eventually was held by a lot of people whose names are very well known, including Moses Maimonides. So the fact that Maimonides arrived in Egypt long before the expulsion of Jews from the Iberian Peninsula tells you that a lot of great 
thinkers, poets, writers, physicians, etc., from the Islamic courts of Spain as they were being pushed out by the long process of the Reconquista in Spain, about which you've heard in some of the episodes on Andalusia, as they were being pushed out, many of them settled either in Morocco, in the northwest corner of Africa, or in Egypt, in the northeast corner of Africa. And that whole Mediterranean literal, including actually Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya, developed strong Jewish communities during this period, even before the flood of arrivals who followed 1492. It is during the Mamluk period that Cairo sort of flowered into the apogee of its importance historically, culturally, etc., etc. But Cairo really is an exceptional place. Jewish community put aside, it is by far the largest city in Africa, also the largest city in the Arab world, and the sixth largest city in the world by population. It has one of only two subway systems in all of Africa, the other being in Algiers, and it ranks among the 15 busiest subway systems in the world, with over 1 billion annual riders. The history of Cairo, unfortunately, is extremely confusing because what is today a city of more than 21 million people includes lots of other cities that were once separate places, and in fact, capitals of various kingdoms, such as Memphis, Heliopolis, others that have been subsumed into this megalopolis and don't have a continuous identity as Cairo. So the Mamluks were both impressive soldiers who defeated and eliminated the last crusader states in the Middle East. Uh, They were also prolific builders, and Cairo's historic center largely constructed by the Mamluks, has been designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. By 1340, Cairo had a population of half a million, making it the largest city in the world west of China. So on January 22, 1517, the Ottoman Sultan Selim the Grim defeated the last of the Mamluk kings of Egypt, and Egypt became part of the Ottoman Empire until that empire was dissolved in 1914. According to an official census published in 1898, Egypt had 25,000 Jews out of a population of just about 10 million people, which is a tiny minority. But the Jewish population grew rapidly. And 50 years later, in 1948, there were 80,000 Jews in Cairo alone, many of whom subsequently either chose to leave or were encouraged to leave by a newly independent Egypt, which actually didn't get rid of the last of its British troops who were occupying it until the mid-50s. During the period of British rule and during the reign of King Fouad I, Egypt was quite friendly towards its Jewish population, and it climbed rapidly as Jews came from elsewhere in North Africa and also from Europe, fleeing various types of oppression or seeking economic opportunity. Interestingly and little known is that Jews played a very important role in Egyptian nationalism and in seeking true independence for Egypt. The leader of Cairo's Sephardic community endorsed the creation in 1935 of an association of Egyptian Jewish youth with its slogan, Egypt is our homeland, Arabic is our language. This leader of the Cairo Sephardic community was strongly opposed to political Zionism and wrote a note to the World Jewish Congress in 1943, in which he argued that Palestine would be unable to absorb all of Europe's Jewish refugees. And this is a subject that is still 
under discussion in Egypt, and remarkably sort of proving the point that with history and politics, you should never say never. In January of 2020, just before the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Egypt restored at a cost of many millions of euros and in a process that took many years, a historic synagogue, the great synagogue of Alexandria, called Eliyahu Navi Synagogue, Elijah the Prophet Synagogue, which was originally built in the 14th century. This is in line with the Egyptians, the Egyptian president's official position that we want to show that there's tolerance here for Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike, that we're not uh, one religion society. And the fact is that this synagogue had fallen into disrepair because there's only probably a dozen or two actual Egyptian Jews left in Alexandria and a similar number in Cairo. The head of Cairo's tiny Jewish community, Magda Harun, said, I'm very proud of what my country has done, and it symbolizes living together. Today, there is no difference between Egyptian, Muslim, Christian, and Jew. With tears in her eyes, she said that she had been struggling for years to preserve the Jewish heritage in Egypt, and she never thought that the Egyptian government would spend the kind of money it required to rebuild this landmark Sephardic synagogue. It is one of two remaining Jewish houses of worship in Alexandria. But it is probably worth noting that, well, worth noting a couple of things. This was built in 1354, destroyed by a fire in 1798 and rebuilt in 1850 when there were many thousands of Jews in Egypt and Alexandria itself had 12 synagogues and at least 40,000 Jews, roughly half the country's Jewish population. But since the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, the Jewish community in Egypt has shrunk dramatically. And this woman, Harun, says, I will be the last Jewish woman in Egypt to close the door of the synagogue. Another woman named Yolanda Mizrahi, in her 80s but still vital, sat on one of the benches at the dedication of the new old synagogue and said that her family left Egypt for France, Italy, and Israel, but she remained and reveled in returning to the synagogue which she attended as a child. I have traveled a lot and I have always returned. This is my country. I belong here. Why should I leave? She added, saying that she hopes her family will come to visit the refurbished synagogue. Egyptian officials are hoping that the synagogue will become a tourist attraction in much the same way as many Jewish sites in Morocco have attracted lots of tourist dollars and lots of tourists from both North America, Europe, and Israel. One of the interesting things about this ceremony is that Egypt's Jews were largely neglected or ignored for over 60 years. And this huge media event was seen as recognition was seen by the Jews, at least, as recognition that we have always been here and we have contributed to a lot of things just like any other Egyptian. Now, it happens that I have a friend from the Foreign Service who was the American ambassador in Cairo at the time of this rededication of the Eliyahu Anavi synagogue. And a lot of Jews originally from Alexandria, now living in Israel, were invited to attend. So the bulk of the people there were actually... Alexandrian Jews who had been away in some cases for 60 or 70 years. But my friend said it was a very moving ceremony and that lots of people cried, which doesn't surprise me. But one last point before we leave Egypt for good, and it is about the nature of 
Egyptian national identity. Although the Saudis and some of the Gulf sheikhdoms may have much more money, they may be much wealthier because of their oil reserves. Egypt has always been the unquestioned cultural leader and intellectual leader in the Arab world. And Egypt was one of the few countries in the Arab world that actually had a national identity and a strong one before the birth of Islam. Most other countries in the Arab world tie their identities and their self-image to the religion of Islam. Egypt has this long history going back to several thousand years before the birth of Christianity and many thousands of years before the birth of Islam. And because it's such a big city and so powerful economically, intellectually, culturally, etc., not only in the Islamic world, but in the world in general, a lot of international organizations and particularly regional ones have their headquarters in Cairo. So today, when people say, oh, there's only a couple of dozen Jews left in Cairo, they're talking about native-born Egyptian Jews. If you add up all the expatriates who do business there or work in diplomatic missions or work in international organizations, there are at least several hundred, if not several thousand. And it's not inconceivable that with this current attitude of granting equal standing and equal importance and equal visibility to the Christian Copts and the Jews of Egypt, that there could be a revival of Jewish life. Uh, There's a lot of Jews there, there's a lot of life, there's a lot of economic activity, and why not? Stranger things have happened in the course of history. Anyway, thank you for your attention, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.